Well, we've reached the apex of our service. What many of the old folks would say, the, the, the preaching moments. And that's the apex, not because of the preacher at all. It's the apex because it's that moment where we slow down and we actually hear God speak through his word. So we actually believe that when a man stands behind this desk, you folks used to call it the preaching desk, there was a seriousness that, that attended God's word, that when people do that, right, that they're not showcasing their oratorical skills, or neither are they showcasing their great learning or intellect or degree. What they are showcasing is the power of God and his word. And so as you see me behind this desk this morning, I hope what you hear is the Lord. We actually believe that God speaks. And so we take the greatest portion of every Sunday opening up the Bible, God's very word, and letting God speak, letting God talk, hearing what the Bible has to say to us. We need the Bible because all throughout the week, we are inundated with all other kinds of information that does not give us life, but that actually makes us despair life even more. And for many of us, that's kind of a double whammy because life is already hard enough and there's already stuff to despair about. What we need is not more worldly wisdom that causes more trouble to our souls. What we need in the midst of all the trouble of our souls is godly wisdom to give us comfort, give us strength, to give us joy, to give us hope, to give us faith, to give us endurance through all of life's trials and for all of life's problems. And so at Temple Hills Baptist Church, basically what we do is open up the Bible. We start at the beginning of the book generally, and we just kind of work through that book until we're finished. It's what's called in some places expositional preaching, not simply because of how we do it, going through books of the Bible. That's one way to do it, but the main point of it is that the main idea, the main point of the scripture becomes the main point of the sermon and is the main thing we think God wants us to hear. And so several months ago for July 2nd, I plotted out in a spreadsheet what we'd be preaching this morning on July 2nd, 2023. But more than that, God providentially plotted out that this message this morning is what you and I need to hear on this very day. And so I hope that we trust that and believe that. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to what the Lord has for us this morning in Job chapter 27. If you're new to the Bible, the book of Job is like right in the middle of the Bible. So the Bible's biggest book is the book of Psalms. So if you just got to flip to the middle, you'll find Psalms. Job is right before that, right? Job chapter 27. If you're using one of the Bibles under the chairs, you can find it on page uh, 434. If you don't have a Bible of your own that you can easily read and understand, then our offer to you, our gift to you is to take that Bible under your chair home as your very own to read and to devour, ask questions about, um, and reach out to us if you have any questions about the Bible, about the sermon even this morning. So listen attentively to God's word. Uh, we'll work our way this morning through chapter 31 as we hear from the title character of this book, Job. Just a quick brief, brief recap of the book. We've been in Job for about six or seven weeks now. In chapters one and two, we, the readers of this book, are given behind the stage access and insight into Job's life. We learn that 
Job is an upright, a God-fearing man whom God has richly blessed with a large family and a large inheritance of possessions, many cattle, many flock, many servants. He was the greatest man in the land of his day. There was nobody like Job. I mean, God said as much, even to Satan's. God was bragging to Satan about Job. Let me tell you about my boy Job, how he lives his life. Then strangely, God put Job forward, not only as one who trusted in God wholeheartedly, but one who God was going to test wholeheartedly. Satan said, well, of course Job trusts you because of all the treasures you've given Job. Job's belief in God was only because of God's blessing of Job. Take everything away, Satan said, and Job's going to turn away from you. And so God allowed much of Job's family and all of Job's possessions and even Job's good health to all be snatched away in just a couple of days. And yet Job still trusted in the Lord. He did not curse God. But he called out to God. He lamented to God in chapter 3 asking why it was all happening to him. Wishing he'd never been born and even asking to die now. Job's friends who come on the scene to comfort him. After hearing Job speak like that, they decided they needed to confront him, to correct him. And for 23 chapters, from Job chapter 4 to Job chapter 26, where we ended last week, we saw three rounds of speeches by Job's three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, where they increasingly called Job out, saying that his great suffering only pointed to one, sin, one thing, only pointed back to one thing to Job's great sin. Sin always leads to, well, that's right, theologically. Yeah. <laughs> so that's what you get for trying to be too. Yeah, suffering, right? Job's friend said, y'all too biblical for me. I like it, I like it. We say we try to be biblical. All right, Job, <laughs> Job's friends think sin always leads to suffering. And with Job increasingly suffering, they say that Job's sin must be really great. And yet Job keeps insisting on his innocence. He hasn't done any particular wrong as they've claimed to bring about all this calamity upon himself. That's where we've been. In our passage this morning, all the friends have stopped talking. They have nothing more to say. And here we hear Job's final defense. And what we see in our passage this morning is what we see in everyone who trusts in God, that Job is built different. Right? He's built different because he's devoted to God. And Job highlights how that devotion to God shows up in every area of life and affects how he deals with the tragedies of life, including the attacks from loved ones. Here's what I think is the main idea of our passage this morning. And so the main idea of the sermon. When God consumes your thoughts and directs your actions, you can stand against false accusations and stand confident in the Lord's vindication. When God consumes your thoughts and directs your actions, you can stand confident against false accusations and confident in the Lord's vindication. 
Look on with a neighbor if you need to get all those words down that you might have missed. We won't read all the chapters of our passage this morning, but just a cursory look at just chapter 27 shows us how Job's mind is consumed with thoughts of God. If you write in your Bibles, you might want to just circle how many times God is formally named. At chapter 27, verse 2, God is called. The second line of verse 2, we hear Job refer to the Almighty. Verse 3, God. Verse 8, God two times. Verse 9, God. Verse 10, the Almighty. The second line of verse 10, God. Verse 11, God and the Almighty. Verse 13, God and the Almighty. The, the pattern continues through chapter 31 with regularity. And that's not including all the other references to God in these chapters using personal pronouns. Now, you might say, well, that's not that significant. I mean, this book is in the Bible. Of course, it's going to talk about God. But it's so significant because oftentimes on a day-to-day -day basis, even the most supposedly theologically minded of us don't think about and talk about God. And you know when that's highlighted most? When people are suffering or experiencing problems. Oh, oh in those moments we may talk a lot, but it's about the problems. It's about the people who have caused our problems. It's about what he or she did. It's about specific slights or specific oversights. It's about what we feel. It's about our backgrounds. It's about how we wish we felt. And you know who often gets little airplay? The Lord we say we love. The Lord we say is so big. In our minds, in our mouths, becomes so very small. One of my former counseling professors used to say that when people come to him for counseling, they pour out their problems and all the issues they're facing, which is fine. But one of the first questions he asks is, where is God in your suffering? Where are your thoughts of him and what are your thoughts of him? We find here Job, at the end of this book, as we near the end of it, and as we hear his final speech, after all the misery that he's endured, Job has his mind stayed on the Lord. And that's no song, isn't it? I woke up this morning with my mind stayed on Jesus. I woke up this morning with my mind stayed on the Lord. We sing it, Job showed it. That's Job here. God consumes Job's thoughts and directs his life, and it gives Job hope and boldness and confidence even when life falls apart and even when friends seek to tear him apart. We'll walk through this text this morning in kind of three stages corresponding to the three realities Job shows us in these five chapters. So three points to the sermon. Number one, we see the way of the wicked. We sit on chapter 27, the way of the wicked. Number two, we see the way to wisdom. We sit on chapter 28, the way to wisdom. And number three, we see the way of the righteous. We sit on chapters 29 through 31. 
the way of the righteous. Number one, the way of the wicked. And in talking about wicked people, Job begins again defending himself and saying, don't look in my direction when you talk about wicked folks. Stop staring at me because I haven't done anything wicked to earn God's judgment. I mean, we read in chapter 27, starting in verse one, and Job again took up his discourse and said, as God lives, who has taken away my rights and the almighty who has made my soul bitter, as long as my breath is in me and the spirit of God is in my nostrils, my lips will not speak falsehood and my tongue will not utter deceit. Far be it from me to say that you are right. Till I die, I will not put away my integrity from me. I hold fast my righteousness and I will not let it go. My heart does not reproach me for any of my days. Job takes what amounts to an oath by the highest authority, God himself. As surely as God lives and he forever does because he is eternal. Well, as sure as that is a reality, and as long as that all living God gives me breath, so surely will I deny your words, you wicked friends. I will not say that your portrayal of me is right, that I have sinned and brought all this calamity on myself. I still hold fast my righteousness and my integrity. Now, some of us might be getting a little irritated at Job here, continuing to defend himself and claiming that he's blameless, that he hasn't done anything wrong. I wonder if, if our irritation or kind of tiredness at Job's kind of defense of himself is because we've been conditioned to think of this kind of language as boastful, as prideful. I wonder if if like Job's friends, we keep on having categories of theology that are proper and true in their proper category, but when misapplied to all situations become total untruths. I mean, truths like human depravity, that people are inherently sinful and evil, born into the world sinners and inclined to sin. Well, friends, that describes all of us in our natural state. But once we put our trust in Christ, the righteous one, or in Job's case, who lived before Jesus, put his trust in God, the righteous one, well, then he declares us righteous. He justifies us based on our faith. And from that declaration, from that justification, we go on to live a righteous life. And so it's not boastful for us to go and, and to say then that there's a righteousness about us, that we have a right standing before God. It's not a self-righteousness that we've conjured up. It's what God has made us to be. We shouldn't be guilted then into a, a false confession when there has been no sin. Job says, I will not speak falsehood, saying that I've done something wicked when I have not. His standing with God is so secure, and so it gives him confidence to stand against false accusations. The reality is that righteous people have often been called wicked by those who themselves claim to be righteous. I mean, that's what we see in the life of Jesus, isn't it? 
He lived a righteous life, but the supposed righteous of his day, the scribes and the Pharisees, constantly claimed that he was wicked. He casted out demons. They said he did it by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. He eats a little bit of lamb, and they claim he's a glutton. He drank one glass of wine, and they say that man is a drunkard. He heals on a Saturday, and they say he's a Sabbath breaker. He claims to be able to forgive sin, and they say you are nothing but full of sin. If people wrongly charge and attack Jesus, the righteous one, as wicked, we need not think it strange when it happens to us. And we need not to be shattered to fall apart when it happens to us. What does God say about you? That's the most fundamental thing. What does God say about you? Well, through faith in Jesus Christ, who loved us and gave himself for us, God calls us justified, righteous in his sight, as righteous as if we live the life of his perfect son. In him, we are hidden and have his righteousness imputed to us. He calls us righteous through the sin-bearing sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. And what does God say about all those then who continue to attack the righteous? Well, they are the actual wicked ones who warrant judgment and who need to be warned. Which we see Job speak of in the rest of chapter 27. In verse 7 of chapter 27, Job lays down something like a curse on his friends who turn into his enemies. Saying, let my enemy be as the wicked. And let him who rises up against me be as the unrighteous. And he goes on to talk about how all that comes upon the wicked in a series of kind of rhetorical questions in verses 8 through 10. That God will cut the wicked one off. That God won't hear his cry. That he won't have any delight from God. Only devastation. Job says in verse 11, he will teach his friends about the hand of God. About what God does that they so confidently assert to know. And in verses 13 through the end of chapter 27, for the remainder of chapter 27, Job lists the judgment that God brings on the wicked. He says in verse 13, this is the portion of a wicked man with God, what they will receive from the Almighty. Verse 14, their children, if multiplied, will meet swift death by sword or, or slow death by starvation. Verses 16 through 19, the wicked might pile up wealth and stuff, but he won't have it for long. He might accumulate it, but another will enjoy it. It will vanish quickly. Verse 19, he goes to bed rich, but will do so no more. He opens his eyes and his wealth is gone. Verse 20, terrors overtake the wicked like a flood. Interestingly, some of what Job describes happening to the wicked sounds similar to what his friends have said. They too said that the wicked's children suffer. That's why Job's children die. They too said that the wicked's possessions won't last. That's why Job's possessions were taken. Right? They see all these things as happening to the wicked. Their problem is that they relate it to Job. But Job says, oh no, this is actually what will happen to you 
If you continue to malign me, if you continue to attack the righteous ones, you will be seen as the actual wicked ones whom God will one day ultimately judge. Maybe you're here this morning, you're thinking, well, that's harsh. Jeez, Joe, man, I know they've been bad to you, but now you're cursing them and telling them that they're going to go to hell and be judged? That's harsh. But, but sometimes what's seen as harsh actions are actually needed to help people in danger. I mean, take, for instance, jerking a child, right? If you jerk a child violently because they cannot and will not stop crying, well, that's harsh and excessive. It's meant to harm them. But if you jerk a child to snatch them out of the street while oncoming traffic is coming, well, yes, it might be a kind of seemingly harsh action, but it's not to harm them, but to actually help them, to save them from danger. Uh, that's something of what Job is doing. He's heard his friends go on and on and on for rounds with their assaults on him. And here he warns them, even if through a curse and accounts of God's judgment of what awaits them if they continue down that path. Love warns those in danger and aims to rescue them by any means necessary. Some folks might be rescued by a smooth pat on the back. Other folks, you're going to have to jerk or, as Jude says, snatch out of the fire. Friends, that's why we have to be willing to evangelize. Eager and urgent to evangelize, to tell people the gospel and to tell them the dangers of rejecting it. Unless I fall into the error of presuming that everyone here knows what the gospel is and what the dangers are of rejecting it. Let me just take a few moments now and explain those benefits and judgments of rejecting the gospel. The gospel is simply the good news about Jesus Christ that brings, that leads to salvation. It's the good news that talks about a good God who is holy and blameless, who is just, who is upright in all his ways, who is loving. That good and holy and loving God created everything in the world, including us. He made you and I as human beings to live under him, to live for him in a beautiful relationship with God as our head and we being blessed and flourishing under the relationship as his kind of vice regents or vice kings, ruling everything for the Lord. As sweet as that situation was, we said it wasn't good enough. And so us humans said, we don't want God to be king. We want to be our own kings. We want to run life our own way. And so every single one of us have rebelled against God. We've turned away from him. We've rejected him and sought to live life our own way. Friends, that is what the Bible calls sin. And it's no small thing. There's no such thing as a little white sin or a little small sin. The Bible says that every single sin is treason against God. And every single sin earns us God's just condemnation and wrath. Right? You see, sin is against an infinitely holy and good God. And so the penalty of sin is equally as infinite and unending and harsh. 
the penalty of sin is eternal death in hell. But God loved us so much that he does not want us to go there. And so he sent his very son, Jesus Christ. God's son became a man. He entered into the world. He lived the perfect life that we should have lived. He lived the righteous life under God, submitting to God in every way that we should have lived. And then he laid down his life. He died on the cross for our sins in our place that we might be reconciled to God. He rose up from the grave three days later showing that his sacrifice was sufficient payment. If the penalty of sin was death, well, Jesus paid it all. He paid the penalty of death. He rose up from the grave, and then he ascended into heaven, and he gave his heavenly father his sacrifice. He presented his heavenly father with his sacrifice, and the father accepted it. And Jesus sat down on his throne where he is now. His work finished, and now he commands all of us to turn from our sins and to trust in him for eternal life. There's amazing blessings in knowing and submitting to and obeying the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. But they are incredible punishments. Because if we do not repent, if we do not believe, the Bible is very, very clear of the unending torment to our bodies and souls that will come to us in the hell fire where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. God will judge all sinners in an eternal place called hell. If that message sounds harsh, this message of God sending people to hell if they don't trust in Jesus Christ, the reality is even harsher. Rejecting and ridiculing Jesus and rejecting and ridiculing the ones who represent Jesus and who testify of him will lead you to hell. Don't bank on that. Believe it now. Uh, don't wait and see, oh, we'll see how bad it is. No, the Bible is meant to tell you how bad it is so you don't go there. Right? So you don't go to eternity in hell. That's the way of the wicked. The, the way we all want, were once headed that God stepped in and intervened. It's the way we don't want anybody here to go and that God does not want you to go and that Job did not want his friends to go. And so Job was willing to say some very harsh things to even curse his friends and to tell them that they were headed to judgment to wake them up and to say, don't go there. Friends, let this clear picture of punishment that will be meted out to sinners provoke you to repent of your sins today and to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. If you've not done this, don't let this day pass without doing that. Right now in your seat, you can trust in Jesus. You can turn from your sins and put your trust in him. You can talk to me at the door, anyone after you, uh, anyone around you after service, we'd love to help you know what that looks like in your life. The way of the wicked to hell does not have to be your way. God doesn't want it to be your way. That's why Job chapter 27 is here for you today. Don't let it be your way. What should then be our way? Well, Job will have all of our ways directed to God and to the wisdom he gives. Which leads us to our second point, the way to wisdom. Point number two, the way to wisdom. In chapter 28, Job seemingly, if you read this chapter or this passage, abruptly changes from giving a passionate defense to his friends to poetically contemplating wisdom. That's so different 
in nature is chapter 28 from the other chapters previous in this book that some commentators say it doesn't belong at all. These cannot be Job's words. It must be unoriginal. But we don't need to jump to those conclusions. Job doesn't have to speak the same way all the time, neither do we, right? As we've seen throughout the book, the super dark lament of chapter 3, wishing for death, isn't how Job speaks in every chapter. He progresses in faith even as he faces miserable circumstances and conditions and confronts the miserable comforters that his friends have been. And his speech is reflective of movements, of some change, of some progression in faith. Here in chapter 28, Job is out to teach his friends. He said as much in chapter 27, verse 1, I will teach you concerning the hand of God. And his lesson here in chapter 28, which sounds much like a proverb, in this lesson, Job, the teacher, teaches his friends of their limitations, of all human limitations to wisdom. You see, Job's friends confidently claimed to have hidden insights, to have some secret wisdom that informed them that Job absolutely was a wicked man who'd done some hidden wrong. But Job means to debunk them, not only in pleading his innocence, but in pleading their ignorance. Look with me at the, at the beginning of chapter 28. Job says, surely there is a mine for silver and a place for gold that they refine. Iron is taken out of the earth and copper is smelted from the ore. A man puts an end to the darkness and searches out to the farthest limit, the ore in gloom and deep darkness. He opens shafts in a valley away from where anyone lives. They are forgotten by travelers. They hang in the air far away from mankind. They swing to and fro. As for the earth, out of it comes bread. But underneath it is turned up as by fire. Its stones are the place of sapphires, and it has dust of gold. Now just notice what we see here. If you observe this passage, you see that all these precious metals and jewels, silver, gold, iron, copper, sapphires, that man diligently searches for, even with all the dangers it entails, no matter the danger, man diligently works to find these things. I mean, verse 3 says that man searches out the farthest limits, the mineral, the farthest minerals and rocks in deep darkness. In verse 4, they open up shafts in faraway valleys. They hang suspended in the air, swinging to and fro, risking their lives to find precious things. Verses 7 and 8 say that not even birds or the most proud, fearless animals dare to go the places men will travel to find valuable things. Man will go anywhere and do anything. Verses 9 through 11, they'll go up into mountains and caves. They'll cut into rocks just to find some precious jewels. Now, now notice before Job gets to the hook of the chapter, uh, notice here something of a profound lesson from human exploration throughout all of time. Notice here, it's in dark and dangerous and lonely places that you find precious gems. In dark caves, away from everybody, men find themselves in dangerous situations digging for gold, and they find it. 
Now think about how that might affect how we think about the dark times we go through in our lives. Dark seasons of loneliness, dark seasons of depression, dark seasons of suffering and severe trials, dark seasons like what Job is going through. What jewels or precious truths might God be meaning for us to find in the midst of the darkness? You, you see, we seem to think that those dark times, these dark seasons are pointless, meaningless. We seem to think they're only punishment from God. And we want these dark times to end immediately. We want to get out of them immediately. But in doing so, we might miss what God is meaning for us to find in these seasons. You see, you don't find gold sitting atop the kind of lush green pastures. You got to find gold in dark pits. I think that's how some of us are. Somehow some of us think we, we want all the, the good stuff. We want all the fruits of Christianity. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. We want them readily available and abounding for us in the lush fields of life. When the sun is shining and everything is all right. We don't want to have to do any digging and clawing. Fighting for faith in dark caves to find more faith. To find more love, more joy, more goodness, to find more of God. Friends, don't despise the dark places, the dark seasons. Dig in because there's gold to be found. And what is that gold? Well, it's the wisdom that comes from God. And that you only get from him and often only in these dark seasons. And so notice how Job highlights and praises men's great efforts to find precious things in verses 1 through 11. But then in verse 12 asks, with all the man's kind of great uh, efforts and achievements and all that men can find, but where shall wisdom be found? <laughs> in other words, you can't get this from human enterprise. You can't get this from human intellect. Chat GPT won't give you this kind of wisdom. Right? Neither can this wisdom be bought by the most precious, big, expensive means of human wealth. For wisdom is far too valuable. I mean, that's the point of verses 13 through 19. Job says in verse 13, man doesn't know wisdom's worth. Verse 15, it can't be bought for gold and silver. No matter how much cannot be weighted out enough to pay wisdom's price. Verse 17, gold and glass cannot equal it. Verses 18 to 19, neither can coral or crystal, pearls or topaz. Right? Bring all your precious jewels. They will not amount to wisdom's worth. So Job asked again in verse 20, from where then does wisdom come? Where can it be found? In verses 21 and 22, it's hidden from everybody who lives. And it's hidden even from the place of the dead. Abaddon and death can't find it either. So who has the hookup on wisdom? Who is wise enough to show us where wisdom is and how we can get it? Verse 23, God. God understands the way to it. He knows its place. He, after all, is the all-wise God who wholly possesses wisdom and who in all his works shows his wisdom. 
his wise ordering of every single thing in the universe. Nothing random, nothing meaningless, but also nothing altogether apparent for man to immediately grasp or totally understand by our own efforts. And we get just one example of the demonstration of God's wisdom in the observable nature he's created. Verse 25 says, when he gave to the wind its weight and apportioned the waters by measure, when he made a decree for the rain and a way for the lightning of thunder, then he saw wisdom. He reckoned wisdom and he declared it. He established it and he searched it out. Most likely the reference here in verse 25, with the great wind and the rain and the lightning and the thunder, is to a thunderstorm. Where one commentator states, God is at once manifest and mysterious, destructive and beneficent or generous. In a thunderstorm, you sense God's presence. It's powerful. You like, and can nobody do this but some higher power? And yet it's also mysterious. You sense that there's a God, but you don't see God in a storm with your eyes. All you see is the dark clouds and the heavy rains. And while those heavy rains and loud cracks of thunder might seem like they are out only to destroy you, it's even in the midst of a heavy storm that God waters the earth to provide for the crops for you and me to enjoy. Who is wise but the Lord? The very thing that you think is out to harm you is actually out to help you. The very thing that you sense but can't see is actually what it means to be wise. God has it and we can't grab it all. And the more we get that limitation and God's ultimate understanding of all things, the better off we will be. Job's friends claimed that they were wise. They knew exactly how God always works. They'd long ago cracked the code to the secret system and just knew the world operated by this predictable pattern. Sin always leads to? Thank you. There we go. And suffering always comes from sin. But how could they have all wisdom to predict all of life? Right? How could they have all wisdom to predict all of life circumstances when something as common as a thunderstorm is so unpredictable? And shows how God is doing more than we can sense or see at all times. Job's friends kept clinging to a system of wisdom. While Job here points us to cling to the source of wisdom. God himself. You notice how often it is that we want the thing without the giver of the thing. Right? Just write me out a little code so I can figure it out. But I don't want to deal with you. No, no, Job says, no, you, you can't get the system until you get the source. And the source don't always give you a neat little system to figure everything out. You just got to trust in him. Job says in verse 28, he has, God has said to man, how do you get it? Behold the fear of the Lord. That is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. To fear the Lord isn't to be shattering in fear of the Lord. It's to be wholly and intensely devoted to him in love and to turn away from evil. It's a kind of intensity to the way you love the Lord that feels as the trembling and fear that, that is expressed when you actually are shaking your knees at something scary. 
It's to cling to God with all that you are. That is wisdom. You can't and won't get true wisdom apart from God. He possesses all wisdom and we can only get it from him. God has the market on wisdom. And we only get it as he reveals it to us. And as he grants it to us. He tells us in his word in James chapter 1 verse 5, if you lack wisdom, ask for it and it will be given generously. Strikingly, Job's friends never ask God anything in this book. You get that? If you lack wisdom, ask God for it. Throughout this book, Job's friends claim to be wise, so wise that they don't need to talk to God at all. They don't ask God anything in this book. They assume to know the mind of God, to know God without ever engaging with God. And yet, it's Job throughout this book who's asking all the questions to God. Why? How long, Lord? We tend to think of those questions as impious and irreverent. Job's friends thought the very questioning of God was Job sinning. Rather, what we see, it was not Job sinning, it was Job seeking after wisdom from the only source it could be found, God himself. My friends, the difficulties of dark days are not intended to drive us merely to more self-introspection, to more self-medication, or to other supposed wise sources for answers to why we're going through what we're going through. Those dark and difficult days are intended by God to lead us to God. So are you seeking him out today in whatever you're suffering or going through? Do you see your suffering as a springboard to lead you to the presence of the Lord? Or are you seeking out other solutions? Quick fixes, relying on human wisdom. Saints, draw near to the Lord today. Pray, ask him questions. And wait on him. Engage his word. Determine even in your dark days to devote yourself fully to the Lord. That is the only way to wisdom. Lastly, after speaking of the way of the wicked, and then the way to wisdom in the final chapters of Job's final defense, Job speaks of the way of the righteous. And he again, for the last time, confidently and boldly insists upon his innocence against his friend's attacks. And he pleads to God to vindicate him. At point number three, we see the way of the righteous. In chapter 29, Job, we see in this kind of entire chapter, recounts his former life. He longs for his former life before all the suffering. He longs for a return back to the good old days. And what does Job most long for? Well, it's the thing we've seen him consistently desire throughout the book. God's nearness, God's presence. I mean, Job says in verse 2 of chapter 29, Oh, that I were as in the months of old or times past when God watched over me. When his lamp, when his light, when his favor shone upon my head. Verse 4, when I was in my prime and when the friendship, the fellowship of God was upon my tent. 
And go, Job will go on in the second half of verse 5 and following to talk about the former days, meaning that his children would still be alive and around him, meaning that he'd still be honored in town. But those good things which we so often prize as primary, Job values as secondary. God is most important, most near to Job's heart. God is whom Job most desires to, to have back around him, to have back near him. And notice Job says the friendship with God was upon his tent, in his home. Job didn't just have a public relationship with the Lord. One that puts on airs and acts like there's an intimacy with God when you go to church that actually isn't really present. No, Job worshiped God. Job fellowship with God. Job felt God's presence at home. There was a public and private worship, and it was sweet. And that's such a needed reminder to me. Maybe it is for you as well. I try my very best, I, I, I trust you do too, not, not to live as a hypocrite. Not to live a kind of double life. That I'm one way here at church and I'm a total different way at home. You catch me at church and I'm praising, you catch me on these streets and I'm cursing. Try not to live a, 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 a hypocritical life. Uh, but I do find it is, it's easier to live an inconsistent life. One that prays more fervently at church than I do at home. Well, some of y'all be telling me about these 15 minute pastoral prayers. One that engages with God's word deeply in preparing for public worship far more deeply than in private worship. So that's one way you can be praying for me. As you think about me and praying for me throughout the weeks, pray that I would not be a professional Christian who only engages with God to carry out the duties of the office of pastor. And pray that I'd engage with the Lord and his word to enjoy the sweet fellowship and friendship of the Lord. It's easy to lose sight that that's the purpose of time with God, to fellowship with him, to commune with him. Maybe you find yourself losing sight of that as well. And thinking of your quiet times merely as duty and never delights. Merely as something you check off each day as a task, as a dry habit, rather than the life-giving, richest part of your day of spending time with the Lord of the universe. Pray that the Lord would wake us up to the wonder that we mere humans can actually say that we are friends with God. Many of us would love to be friends with some celebrity or some athlete. God says, you can be my friend. You can have fellowship with me. This God who is high and lifted up and so transcendent is also imminent and near. He came near to us to draw us near to him. And he does not want that relationship to grow cold or distant. And the only reason it ever grows cold or distant is never him, but always us. He might seem distant, but never is. So we want to aim for, be provoked to have a friendship, a fellowship with the Lord. That was Job's top priority. Pray that it will be our top priority as Christians. Every day, 
every week, Lord, make you my top priority. Help me as I read these few verses. As I got five minutes in the car to pray, help me not to just engage in the duty. Help me to engage with you, Lord, and to enjoy this sweet fellowship with you. That was Job's top desire, but it wasn't his only desire. We stated it, and Job tells it that he, he also wishes, he desires that the honor that he once had would return. He says in verse 7, I used to go out to the gate of the city where all the business took place, the kind of town square, and young people and old people rose up in my presence like I was the president. And they hushed their mouths. The room went silent, or the town square went silent when Job came into the picture. Everybody revered and respected him. And you might think, well, that's vain of Job to, to just want to have people's honor again. But what Job wants is the vindication that such honor would bring. Because look at why people honored Job. Because of how he cared for the needy. Verse 12, he says, all this honor was given him because I delivered the poor who cried for help. And the fatherless who had none to help. Verse 13, I provided and caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. If you remember, these are the very things in chapter 22 that Job's friend Eliphaz said so confidently that Job did not do. In chapter 22, verse 9, Eliphaz says, you have sent widows away empty. And the arms of the fatherless were crushed. Therefore, as a result of your hard-heartedness to those in need, snares are all around you and sudden terror overwhelms you. Well, here Job says the total opposite. That is not how I lived my life as a wicked man. Rather, verse 14 of chapter 29, I put on righteousness and it clothed me. Notice for Job, when he speaks of righteousness, he speaks not just of his standing before God, but how that right standing with God leads him to righteous acts of kindness toward others, especially the vulnerable in society. His relationship with God is what leads him to care for people in need. Let me drop down to verse 16. Job says, I was a father to the needy, and I searched out the cause of him I did not know. Job didn't just wait for people close to him to come to him. He sought out strangers and sought ways to help them. And that's what Jesus, whom Job is a foreshadow of, did for us. Uh, Luke chapter 19 verse 10 says that he seeks and saves the lost. And he doesn't just come to those who come to him. He comes to those who don't know him. I mean, you see that all throughout the gospel accounts in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. I mean, Jesus didn't have a relationship with Zacchaeus, but Jesus intentionally sought him out, intentionally went his way that Zacchaeus might have a relationship with him. Jesus didn't have a relationship with the Samaritan woman at the well. She didn't know him at all, but Jesus intentionally said, I have to go by the way of Samaria just so she might know him. Jesus sought out people to do them some good. He sought us out to do us spiritual good. Job was a precursor of Jesus, and we are postcursors of Jesus, following in the footsteps of both Job and Jesus. Friends, that's why it's good for us 
not simply to respond to needs, to help those who come to us for help. That's why it's good for us to actually go out and seek how we might help and do good to other people whom we don't know. That's godly of us. That's what God does and what godly righteous people do. And that's what's motivating, fueling, pushing the Rochesters, Drew and Han, to, to do what they've spoken of over the last few weeks of going to Southeast Asia. I hope I don't say the, 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 the country. It's probably coming. Many of you might say, well, I mean, Han's from that area. Of course she's going to go. She know everybody there probably, especially with her outgoing personality. But the country they're going to is in a, in a region where Han is not from. Right? She might be familiar with the territory, but she doesn't know those folks. And Drew has absolutely no ties to them at all. So why in the world would they go thousands of miles away to people they don't know? Well, to do them some good. To tell them about a God who loves them so much that he sent his very own son to suffer and die for their sins so that they might not die and perish, but rather have eternal life forever. He loved them so much. How that God is calling them to trust in him. Same way they've trusted in him. Yeah, that message of salvation has to be communicated in order for people to be saved. And if we want to see people saved not just in our families and friend groups, then we've got to go to people who we don't know and tell them about the Jesus they don't know. That's why it's good for some of us to go and for many other, others of us to support works like these for the sake of the name of the gospel to people whom we don't know and whom yet don't know the Lord. That's why it's good for us to do local things like some of us have done for years here now, ministering at the Forestville Pregnancy Center on Saturdays. Several of our members are involved in that ministry. They don't know the folks who they're going to meet on Saturdays. They have no clue who those folks are. So why in the world would they give up a precious Saturday, the kind of good part of that Saturday, to go and sit, spend time with people who they don't know from Adam? Well, they hope to do them some good, to do some good to some unborn babies, to do some good to some moms thinking about aborting a little baby, to, to do some good to some moms who think they have no other way and no other hope. And so what is it worth giving up a few hours to do a lifetime and an eternity perhaps of good to folks we don't know? That's what the Lord has done for us. That's what the Lord is calling us to do for others. You see, our righteousness always shows up in our righteous deeds toward others. Those deeds are not the root of our righteousness, Christ is the root. Well, those righteous deeds are always the fruit of our righteousness. If there's no righteous acts, no righteous living, then we have no real assurance or claim that we are actually righteous. See, Job can be confident against his friend's claims, not because he was boasting in himself, but because his life testified of his Lord. I'm righteous through my standing with him, and because of my standing with him, I live the right way, not as you keep saying that I live. Job declares his innocence against his friends by pointing to his care for people. And yet those same people don't care for Job at all. I mean, look at chapter 30, verse 1. Job says, but now, all the people I've helped over the years, they all laugh at me. Even the most despised people of the land, they despise me as well. I mean, people way younger than me 
In verses 2 through 8, people in society who live like animals, the low lives, even the most despicable people in society poke fun at me. In verse 10, they abhor me. They do not hesitate to spit at the sight of me. Because God has loosed my cord and humbled me, they have cast off restraint in my presence. When Job seems to have the favor of God, everyone was cool with Job. When God seems to have removed that favor, everybody is cruel to Job. Well, friends, even that is the way of the righteous. We are not always rewarded with praise and honor from people to whom we do good to. Sometimes you give a man a piece of bread and he curse you to your face. I want a Chipotle. <laughs> That'd be happening, don't it? <laughs> you, just, you, you can either say never again, or you'd be like, all right, take my hits and keep on moving. Because we don't minister or serve for people's praises. We minister and serve out of our devotion to the Lord and for the sake of pleasing him and doing his will. Jesus did much good to people, and yet many turned against him, even the worst of society. Even the seeming scum scoffed at Jesus. I mean, on the cross, sinless Jesus is surrounded by two convicted criminals about to die the most despicable death possible, and yet there they are, despicable as they are, mocking Jesus, insulting him. To be a righteous man or a righteous woman is to receive slander, insults, hurts from the hand of others it is to suffer jesus experienced that job experienced that and we will as well job goes on in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 30 to talk of all the spiritual and bodily agony he was feeling in his suffering and how god in verse 19 was behind it all God has cast me into the mire. There's no outside force in Job's world that's causing the bad and God does the good. Nobody else is in control. His mind, again, is consumed with God. God is still God, even if he seems to have turned cruel against Job. But Job knows it's not for punishment for unchecked sin. It's not because of a life that Job has lived in rebellion. And so in chapter 31, his final words, Job again testifies of his righteous life. And just notice the very various areas Job intentionally lived for the Lord. In sexual purity, Job says in chapter 31, verse 1, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then can I gaze at a virgin or look at a woman with lust, which Jesus thousands of years later says is sin. And look at what motivated Job's purity of, of eyes and mind. It was his devotion to God. He says in verse 2, what would be my portion from God above if I did these things? Would he not judge me? Verse 4, does he not see my ways? Job lived all of life, quorum Deo. It's a Latin phrase meaning in the face or in the sight of God. And so do we. I wonder how that might impact what we watch on our phones, what we view on our laptops. Brothers and sisters, if you are struggling with pornography, and yes, men and women do struggle with it. If you are a man or woman struggling with pornography, there are all kinds of practical steps that you can take to help you in the fight. But let this be the primary driver and motivator and force to help you in the fight. That God sees everything that I am doing. 
And I do not want to displease him who so passionately loves and cares for me. Job goes on to list other ways where he's walked uprightly before the Lord. From business dealings to the ways he's treated his workers to the way he's treated the needy. And just notice from the rest of the chapter, basically, from verses 5 through 34, the constant if-then conditions or clauses that Job says. If I have done some wrong, some sin, some crime, then surely I deserve punishment. Verse 5, if I have walked with falsehood and my foot has hastened to deceit. Verse 8, then let me sow and another eat. Verse 9, if my heart has been enticed toward a woman and I have lain in wait at my neighbor's door, then let my wife grind for another and let others bow down on her. It's graphic. But Job says the consequence would fit the crime, which he says in verse 11 is a heinous crime. You know, it's helpful to see how the Bible talks about sin, how differently the Bible talks about sin than we do. Sexual sin in our culture is celebrated. Well, there is no such thing as sexual sin. Right? Where in the Bible it's condemned. In the Bible, adultery and polyamory and hookup culture and Netflix and chill and fornication, they are heinous in God's sight. Job lives as such. Job like, I don't care how fine she is, the Lord's going to meet me with fury if I go follow her instead of my own wife. Sometimes we do need that fear of the Lord that is, I don't want to face him to keep you in line. Right? Job goes on to talk about other ways that he has kept his confidence. He's lived a life pleasing to the Lord. He goes on and says in verses in verse 16, if I've upheld or withheld anything that the poor desired or caused the eyes of the widow to fail, if I've if they've if uh, or have eaten my morsel alone, I've not shared with others and the fatherless has not eaten of it. Right? If I have seen, verse 19, anyone perish for lack of clothing or the needy without covering, if his body is not blessed by me, verse 22, then let my shoulder blade fall from my shoulder and let my arm be broken from its socket. It's very graphic. Like, bro, you're getting real specific. Job is saying, let the worst pain come to me, right? If I have dared not to live a life that honors the Lord in all these different relationships. Notice, Job never says that all these things happen to me if I don't recite all 150 psalms. That all these things happen to me if I don't give 15 offerings this year to the Lord. You see, there are formal requirements of righteousness that Job is not belittling, but Job is saying far more often how we religious folks think is that our Devotion to the Lord doesn't show up in the day-to-day duties of friendships, of relationships, of caring for those we know and don't know. People in the workplace and people in our home. Senior citizens and little babies. Unborn and those about to die. Job says, from the womb to the tomb, I've lived a righteous life. And it gives Job confidence. Confidence. So that at the end of chapter 31... After Job goes and recounts all the things that he's done and his, the ways he's lived, in verse 37 he says, I would give him an account, God an account of all my steps. Like a prince, I would approach him. All right, Job is saying, the way I've lived, I'm so confident that the Lord is honored by them that I can't wait to stand before him. 
Even as he stands against his accusers now, Job says, let God accuse me. And God will accuse the wicked, but Job is so assured that he does not belong to the way of the wicked. He has followed the ways of the righteous. He's lived for the Lord, and it grants him great confidence as he looks ahead to the Lord. Says, I hope that that's motivation for us. One day we will meet God. What will the Lord say? Is the well done, good and faithful servant you have served in all these different ways, not to earn your standing with me, but to show your standing with me? Or will he say, depart from me? Job is trusting in the Lord. His trust keeps him going even through life's darkest trials. Our trust in the Lord is meant to do that. So, Friends, I pray that we as a church will continue to trust in the Lord with all our hearts and to lean not on our own understanding, but to seek wisdom and understanding from him and to live like he has called us to as Christians and as a church until he calls us home. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would help us to live faithfully to you. Lord, help us to be consumed with thoughts of you and to have our, all our actions uh, draw near to you, uh, Lord, so that we might have confidence and boldness in all of life's trials and all of life's uh, difficulties, Lord, that you have not abandoned us, that you are not judging us for evil, but yet you are shaping us and drawing us closer to yourself and showing us some of your good. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.